Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ladies and gentlemen, record geeks, retired plate spinners, and millennials who want to impress their parents with their record collections. Welcome to the RhinoCast podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Get ready for new releases, deep tracks, and conversations with your favorite artists and bands. And balloons for the kitties. And now, your hosts with the most, Rich Mahan and Dennis the Menace. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, we speak with Michael Howe, archivist for the Prince Estate, about the new Prince release, Originals. Hey, Rich. Hey, Dennis. You know, we say this every time, but I'm going to say it again. Have you been to the Rhino website lately? I go every day, and that's no joke. I'm on the email list. You can sign up for news and cool things that are happening, but you can also sign up for Album of the Day. Besides Album of the Day, there are Rhino-curated playlists that link through to Spotify, of all different genres, and there are exclusive items like the massive Woodstock box set, Back to the Garden, that are available only at rhino.com. There's all kinds of cool stuff there. If you are a music fan, you owe it to yourself to get connected. And I have to add one thing. You also have the opportunity there to subscribe to this podcast. And I mean, we're we're invested in that just a little bit. Speaking of podcasts and topics, this week we have the pleasure of speaking with Michael Howe, who is the archivist for the Prince Estate. He's in charge of the mythical Prince Vault. All of the music, all the recorded material, whether it was his studio recordings, rehearsal recordings live video, live audio from performances, it's all in there. Michael talks with us today, gives us a special look inside the vault, and tells about pulling out some music for a new release, Prince Originals. Yeah, and you know what? I'm, I'm just going to do a little scanning here and read you a few song titles. Sex Shooter, Jungle Love, Manic Monday, Baby You're a Trip, uh, The Glamorous Life. And so people might say, Dennis... Those aren't Prince songs. That's Sheila E. That's the time. So what people need to know is that Originals is Prince's original version of all of these songs that he wrote for other artists. And it is a revelation. It really is to hear where those songs started in their, in some case, rawest form. Prince fans are going to absolutely love this. Originals is available in a few different configurations. It's available digitally. It's available as a single CD, a 2LP set, and a deluxe 2LP CD set. Well, you were there, and I can't wait to listen, so why don't we get into your conversation with Michael Howe about Prince Originals here on the Rhino Podcast. 
Michael Howe, thank you. Welcome to the Rhino Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So you work for the Prince Estate. Why don't you tell us what your title is and what you do on a day-to-day? I am the chief archivist for the Prince Estate, which means I am responsible generally for the curation, preservation, organization, and overall well-being of the entire audiovisual output of Prince's career. Wow. Yeah. Uh, you, how long you have, have you summarized been? my thoughts. <laughs> how long have you been at this? Well, I worked as Prince's sort of last A&R guy, although there was no bona fide A&Ring to do when he was alive. Right. Uh, when he sort of re-engaged with Warner Brothers at the uh, during the 2014 kind of time period. So technically, I've been in the Prince ecosystem for five years, but what I'm currently doing, I've been doing for about uh, just under two, I would say. Yeah, since middle to late 2017. The Prince Vault, which contains, you know, it's it's mythical. Yeah. The way people refer to it and talk about it. it contains all of the recorded material that he produced, whether it was studio recordings, live recordings, rehearsal tapes, videos. Mm-hmm. For the most part, it's been moved from Paisley Park in Minnesota to Los Angeles. Yeah. But before it moved, what was it like to walk inside that vault? Well, that's a very good question and not an experience I had, believe it or not. Um, However, from the people that I've spoken with who were part of that world, it was a bona fide vault, kind of a, you know, a bank vault, swinging door, highly secure proposition. uh, Climate controlled. For which climate controlled all the bells and whistles, basically, as you would imagine, you know, a repository of that caliber to be. But it was not uh, perhaps in the most conventional state of organization, shall we say, at that point. Right. So since then, have you cataloged all the contents? It's a multi-part answer. We have begun weaving our way through an enormous amount of material. All of it is accounted for, meaning it all has barcodes and numbers and is in one location and we can, you know, easily identify specific assets when we need to. But not all of them have been digitized or, you know, otherwise organized in a way that would be obvious to somebody just walking in there kind of off the street and looking at it as if it were a shelf of books, for example. Right, right. How much physical material is there? I mean, like, how large of a room do you have to have to house everything in the vault? It's a very large room. You know, it's a tremendous amount of audiovisual material on basically any format you, you know, could possibly imagine with the exception of, you know, wax cylinder, perhaps. I mean, it's, you know, analog of every stripe. It's, you know, digital formats, it's film, you know, it's, you know, largely outdated uh, video, you know, sort of formats at this point. I mean, it's just a tremendous array of, you know, a head spinning array of stuff. I mean, it's a real... It's a real challenge sometimes to determine how to best yeah. <laughs> how to best contextualize some of the stuff and although it's a wonderful challenge to have because the body of work is so, you know, magnificent and you know, it's a very humbling experience to be, you know, kind of in it every day. Yeah. Yeah. How often does your jaw drop when you listen to something new? I'm a lot. A lot. Yeah. yeah. It's it's, you know, a weekly occurrence, I would say. Percentage-wise, how and with the contents of the vault how much of it would you say are unreleased songs versus things that were commercially released? Not counting like rehearsal tapes, live 
recordings. This starts to get into areas that are difficult for me to, to specifically respond to only because of the limitations of my NDA, but suffice it to say that there is an extraordinary amount of unreleased material, finished unreleased material that... Uh, completed masters, not completed just Completed masters, correct. Wow. Yes, completed masters, not instrumental snippets that were abandoned or not revisited or you know otherwise uh, sort of cast aside. I'm talking about you know, finished either rough mixes or half-inch stereo flat masters of stuff. Wow. Yeah. You're in the process of digitizing all the analog contents of the vault right now, and I can only imagine what a Herculean task this is. Yeah. How long have you been at it, and how much more time do you think it'll take until you finish? We've been at it really full throttle since late, very late 2017, probably November or December of 2017. So we're almost two years into it, and it's it, it has many more years. I mean, and, and this is you know at the pace that we're currently going, which is full time, many more years it will take to get through the stuff. I mean, we're doing it as best we can, you know, chronologically for a number of reasons. The, you know, the first of which is that the oldest tapes, as you know, are the ones in potentially the most distress. So you want to get to those first. Yeah, they become fragile uh, as they age. They become fragile as they age, exactly. So you want to get to those first, basically do it right the first time and hopefully never touch those masters again. The, the challenge is that there are all kinds of commercial considerations that enter the frame on a, on a daily basis almost. So even if we are you know, moving at a good pace from a chronological standpoint, all of a sudden we'll have to pay attention to a different time period, you know, and pivot to accommodate those things. So we get right. distracted from the task at hand. And particularly with the audio stuff, it is a real-time proposition. You know, it's one guy, one tape. You know, you got to make sure the heads are clean and the machine is calibrated and the tape doesn't need to be baked. And, you know, you know the Pro Tools is working properly and, the you know, the DACs are working properly. And, you know, it's you run down the tape in real time and then you have to put the metadata in. I mean, it's a very, very involved process. Time intensive. Very time intensive. Yeah, it's not like you can put a baker's dozen tapes in a, you know, in a, a bank of machines and just hit play and go. I mean, right. it's, you know, it's really meticulous. Attention to detail. Attention to detail, exactly. What was the first thing... After you kind of wrapped your head around what was in there and how much amazing material was in there, what yeah. was the first thing you ever picked out yourself to listen to? Well, that's also a multi-part question because I was involved in the, when Warner released the sort of expanded Purple Rain remaster in 2017, I was kind of involved in an A&R, more than kind of involved in an A&R capacity for that. So I would say probably the things that were included on that were the first bona fide official vault tapes, you know, that I had the chance to listen to right, you know, right from the source. The first thing I worked on when I got in there that caught my eye and seemed like something that would be really worthy of release was Prince's version of Nothing Compares to You, yeah. which was released as a standalone single uh, in 2018. But right. it was identified, obviously, before that, and I brought it to the attention of my colleagues, and so we sort of talked about how to best shine a light on it. I can eat my dinner in fancy Originally, Nothing Compares to You was written for and recorded by the family in 1985. Mm -hmm. But, of course, 
when Sinead O'Connor recorded it and released it in 1990, it became a worldwide smash. Yeah. Was it just a song that she found herself, or did Prince think this might be good for this artist? I don't know the answer to that. I don't know how it first came into Sinead's orbit, to tell you the truth. I mean, it could have been, you know, somebody at her record label who was aware of the family's, you know, version or album or who was a Prince fan in general and who kind of had a vision for what it could be. But I don't know how she initially became aware of it and then, you know, ended up tracking it and, you know, making it really her own. I mean, she really popularized the song in a way that I, you know, perhaps even Prince didn't uh, recognize could happen. What was Prince's litmus test for deciding which of these songs would make a record versus sitting on the shelf? That's an excellent question and one that I contemplate on a regular basis because you know, listening to the stuff, especially when putting expanded bodies of work together that examine the entire creative era, for example, of a specific album or, you know, period of Prince's creativity, you know, the stuff that he was casting aside in many instances or decided to move on from or give to other artists is astonishingly high. I mean, you know, from a batting average kind of standpoint, you know, his average between probably 79 and at least you know, 88, 89, 90, 91, was remarkable. I mean, just, you know, just the the sheer quality of, uh, you know, of the things that he gave away or otherwise abandoned or, you know, decided not to include is jaw-droppingly awesome for the most part. You know, there's not, you know, obviously not everything is, you know, is otherworldly, but there's an, you know, an astonishing array of world-class material, in my estimation, that was... Yeah. You know, that was for whatever reason, and who knows, he was obviously a fickle guy. He was more creatively evolved, I think, than really anybody, certainly, that I've ever worked with. You know, a a Hendrix-level good guitar player. Oh, absolutely. You know, a better drummer than the vast majority of his own drummers, all of whom were, you know, really good players. You know, know, a, a guy who had facility on virtually any instrument he picked up. You know, a singer of the high... I mean, you know, just... Hearing his, I mean, on originals, for example, those vocals, for the most part, are just one-take guide vocals, you know, which are orders of magnitude better than comped masters from most other artists that I can think of. I mean, just sitting down in real time and banging something out that's, like, incredibly strong. I've been wondering what to wear. So I don't know what his reasons were on a lot of the stuff that he left behind or otherwise, you know, just decided to move on from. But, but you know, he had a very specific vision, you know, with each thing, a very intentional sort of approach to these things. And I think that, you know, when he recognized the song would be better suited for somebody else or for future release or otherwise just kind of, you know, pushed to the periphery, those things were done with intention and, you know, replaced with something that he felt was more representative of whatever the, you know, the emotional impact that he was trying to convey was. Right. You mentioned that, you know, fantastic guitar player, amazing. He's just an amazing musician. Yes. He could play just about anything. Yep. Legend says. Yeah. And a lot of times he would go into the studio and he would record everything himself. Yeah. And 
some people think he was a perfectionist, but you've said that he wasn't a perfectionist. He was more concerned with emoting and making sure that the vibe he wanted to get across came yes, across. Yes, yes. That's certainly the, you know, one of the things, you know, going into this, I, I, I kind of imagine Prince to be a perfectionist and you hear a lot about his, you know, his methods and how, you know, incredibly facile he was in the studio. But a lot of the stuff really, I think, you know, for the most part, almost without exception, was really about conveying some kind of feeling and what the listener would take away from it. And, you know, and Prince putting everything he had into the performance. There's masters that have all kinds of, from a technical standpoint, all kinds of errors on them. Distortion, bum notes, just things that probably would get, you know, snipped out of other masters by other artists just because right. of their, you know, perceived lack of professionalism. But, for, you know, but Prince kept them in there. And, and that became part of the, you know, fabric of his creativity. Yeah, yeah. His recording style, obviously when he started recording, everybody was using... 24-track, two-inch tape, yeah. analog tape. Yeah. Did he stick with analog his whole career when he was recording in the studio, or did he move to Pro Tools or digital recording at some He point? moved to digital, but, not, but, but pretty late. You know, I mean, he was uh, certainly inclined to, you know, to use analog, I think, wherever possible until it became, you know, more difficult, I think, to do, you know, to basically to walk in and just sit down and bang something out because he's, you know, he was that kind of guy. If he had an idea... 2.30 in the morning, he could walk in and probably, you know, more toward the end of his career, easily do that, you know, from a digital standpoint than, uh, you know, than trying to put an analog tape, you know, on a reel <laughs> right. uh, or on a machine. Yeah. Um, but there was, you know, pretty late into his artistic evolution, he was, he was still, you know, doing a lot of analog recording. Was he a demos guy or when he had an idea, he's like, I'm just going to go in and record it and that's going to be my master? There, there are demos that for the most part, in my experience, are really generally pretty skeletal. And, you know, the, the sort of demos that you and I would think of as, you know, sort of typical demonstration recordings, in his case, are pretty much masters. I mean, you know, yeah. the stuff on originals, for example. Right. You know, even though they are categorized as demos, you know, by a lot of the people who have listened to the stuff and, you know, have have been determined as sort of the blueprints for, you know, whatever ended up emerging from the other artists are largely finished tracks. I mean, they're not, you know, it's not him sitting down with a Tascam, you know, four track cassette recorder for the most part. It's, it's, you know, going in and, you know, doing a full blown recording, <laughs> sometimes in real time, sometimes in, you know, which just a couple of overdubs and being finished, you know, from minute one to, you know, two and a half hours later, basically having the entire thing. Right. You know, it was a sort of a dizzying speed that he worked at sometimes. So when he went in and started to compile the songs for originals, what condition were the masters in? Did you have to do anything to bring them up to a high enough quality release? Most of the masters were in exceptionally good condition. All of the two-inch uh, tapes, the multi-tracks, obviously were in great condition. The rough mixes, in many cases, existed only on cassette. So in that you know, in, in those cases, and if they were not suitable for commercial release or didn't have the kind of sonic integrity that Prince would demand, yes. certainly, we went right back to the two inch and mixed exactly to the spec that's on the cassette. So basically oh, you're cool. hearing, you know, there's no real, you know, sort of creative liberty being taken. It's, you know, we're taking the, the existing rough mix and making it sound as if it were, you know, being played for the first time, you know, from a cassette or from a half-inch reel, approximating what, approximating, was on the, yes. duplicating that exact mix. Exactly, we're oh, not, we're not concerned 
with the vagaries of the 21st century pop marketplace. You know, it has to be right you wanted in the, the sound of the period. The exact sound of the period. Wow, The that's exact great. sound. Did you then use older digital delays? Did you try to approximate the kind of gear that you knew he was using at the time? Absolutely. I mean, we, you know, we mostly sort of imagine ourselves in whatever, you know, the, the period of time is July of 84, you know, in right. the case of nothing compares to you as if we're sitting in, you know, whatever sunset sound studio three, you know, and just working exactly in those conditions, not, you know, not really with taking into consideration any of the, you know, the sort of commercial concerns of, you know, the 21st century marketplace. Right. You know, we want to do this with, I mean, the overarching, I say this a lot, but the overarching sort of guiding principle with all of the stuff that we do is to do it with as much completeness and respect and integrity, you know, as, as Prince would demand and as the body of work deserves. So you must have that try to adopt his mindset as you're working on it. To the best of our abilities, we can. And we involve people who were there at the time. I mean, the engineers who were in the room with him. You know, it's like that's part of the the philosophy is to get people who were, you know, in the room or in, you know, in his orbit at the time and have a real perspective on it and know how the room sounded and know what was happening, you know, on a minute by minute basis. So it's not, you know, there's we're minimizing the guesswork as much as possible. Yeah. Where did you guys do the remixes? A lot of them were done by Nico Bolas at his studio outside of Inventura, actually, outside called uh, The Surf Shack. And Tony Maserati did Nothing Compares to You back in 18 at his studio, which I believe is called Mirrorball, which is in Burbank. But there were, you know, existing half-inch tapes that, you know, that we, that we used, I think Love That Will Be Done was, you know, a finished master. There was no mixing done with that. And I think Michael Koppelman mixed that in 91. Tell us about how the idea for Originals came about. So when we released Nothing Compares to You as the standalone single, it was so well received and, you know, generated so much interest that we thought it would be a nice idea, a nice extension of that idea to shine a light on some of the other material that Prince, you know, wrote for or gave to other artists, you know, that weren't envisioned as part of a Prince proper body of work. And there's a tremendous, you know, a master list of like 268 of those things. So, you know, we put the, the universe of possibilities together and kind of winnowed it down from there. And, you know, that's how we came up with the originals concept. And the 268 songs that he wrote for the people that you just mentioned, were those primarily written in that hotbed of activity from... That was over the course of his career. Oh, okay. I mean, I would say, you know, I would say probably, I mean, I'm just ballparking it, but 60 to 70 percent were written, you know, before the mid 90s. But there were certainly exceptions to that that occurred afterwards. Sure. Yeah. Did he purposely write with other artists in mind or did he finish the song and say, oh, this would be great for this artist? I I think he did, you know, intentionally or deliberately write. In fact, I know he did, particularly in the early days when he was starting the the process of engaging some of what became his protege kinds of acts. Right. Um, Vanity Six. Yeah, there was, you know, the, there was a band that he had in mind called The Hookers, which was the precursor to Vanity Six. It was before Denise Vanity ended up, you know, drifting into Prince's orbit. So this is, you know, kind of summer of 81, you know, controversy era. 
and, and my, you know, knowing what I do about the style of the material and who was involved, I think he probably had, you know, a vision of kind of a Gary Newman meets Go-Go's meets sort of Runaways collision of some kind, you know, sonic and uh, aesthetic kind of collision. That ended up, you know, sort of morphing into Vanity 6 when Vanity entered the picture. Make. stuff that was you know written specifically for the hookers you know turned into vanity six stuff certainly things that he wrote for intentionally for the time or wrote you know with morris and you know jesse in mind Absolutely wrote deliberately for the family, for Apollonia 6, which was the successor to Vanity, uh, uh-huh. you know, when Denise left. Most artists are just happy to write great songs for themselves. Yeah. To have such a wealth of amazing songs yeah, that yeah. you can't release them all yourself. Yeah, I know. I mean, the stuff that he was giving away, you know, it's just like, here's Jungle Love. Here's Nothing Appears to You. Here's Manic Monday. <laughs> it's like, okay. I mean, you know, like, yeah. here's Sugar Walls. Here, you know, it's like yeah. stuff that became substantial hits, you know, yeah. and in some cases career-defining stuff for, for the other artists were, you know, was just... Given, you know, given away by Prince. <laughs> Glamorous life. And, you know, I mean, just like, yeah. wow. Did he ever co-write with anybody? Yes, he did. He shared writing credits a lot of the time. And so, in some cases, actually just gave writing credits to people that he, you know, was working with or otherwise, you know, contributed either completely or substantially to the material. I think that, you know, a lot of the Sheila stuff, for example, he certainly co-wrote, but she is credited as the sole author on some of that the stuff. The anti-Elvis. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so it's kind of a, you know, it's sort of the... As you say, the the opposite situation that most people have where you're making a kind of a land grab for a lot of stuff, it seems that he was maybe less concerned. I mean, and in some cases, probably, I don't know what his exact thought process was, but maybe there was a, you know, there was a thought that, you know, if I am perceived as the guy sort of pulling the strings, these artists are not going to get the recognition they deserve because they'll seem, you know, part of my... Nepotism or something. Exactly. There's some kind of nepotism or their own inability to, you know, to, to step up and have their own identity and, you know, make a mark for themselves if, you know, if, you know, the superstar is kind of, you know, in the shadows behind them. So I think yeah. it was intentional. Yeah. There are some songs on originals. Obviously, the Bangles re-recorded. Mm-hmm. They heard his version. They yeah. recorded their own version of it. Was he involved in the recording of, of their take on no. Manic Monday at all? No. 
He was not. They retracted. David Kahn produced it, and they retracted, you know, in a very specific way. I mean, it was similar to you know the bridge the is a little that, different. The bridge is a little different. You know, there are some, obviously some sonic differences, but Prince was not involved at all in in that session, from what I understand. I mean, it was done completely outside the scope of his involvement or presence. Was Prince a big fan of the Bengals? Yeah. He was. I mean, he had seen them a couple of times, I think, at least once in San Francisco. He was given a recording of their first album, I think, by Apollonia, if I remember correctly. Somebody mentioned he met Susanna Hoffs on a, on a plane or something. I don't know if that's true, but however it happened, he basically submitted two songs to them. I mean, Manic Monday was initially intended for Apollonia 6. It was, you know, tracked with her vocals and then left off the record. Interesting. Yeah. Then it was submitted with another song called Jealous Girl to the Bangles. They passed on Jealous Girl. They said, we'll do Manic Monday. And that's, you know, how it happened. And then when they retracted, I tell this story a lot too, but they retracted and released it. And when it was released, it, you know, became a number two single for them. It was kept off the number one spot only by Prince himself, who released <laughs> oh my God, how funny is the song that? Kiss. So he had the number one spot as a, you know, as a performer and the number two spot as a writer, which I think was only the third or fourth time that it ever happened in, you know, in Billboard chart history. Yeah, the Beatles, maybe. The Beatles, exactly. Yeah, Beatles but, did it, I think. Uh, maybe Stevie Wonder or somebody did. I can't remember, but there were very, right. very few instances where that had occurred. Yeah. yeah. How funny. Yeah. Well, they picked the right song. They picked the right song. That's exactly right. Just another Monday. Now, some of the songs on here, Prince recorded himself, and they were released by only changing the vocals on there. Can you give us a couple examples of songs on here that were recorded that way? Well, there you know there are certainly the jungle of master. I mean, it's the you know it's certainly the same bed track as is glamorous life. I mean, those were things that received some overdubs and some some mix changes and some tweaks, but they were what's largely what you are hearing. You know, basically with Prince's vocal muted and Morris's or Sheila's or whoever's kind of inserted where Prince's would be. Makeup certainly is that way, which is a Vanity Six track. Glamorous Life is the same master. Jungle Love is the same master, you know, two-inch. The majority of New Rendezvous, the majority of them are, you know, the same. In the case of Jungle Love, would other members of the time come in and add anything besides Morris singing like the guitar solo at the end? Was that Jesse playing the guitar solo? Yeah. And Jesse, in in his, not defense, but to, to, you know, to, to be fully transparent, I mean, Jesse was very involved in writing that track. I mean, my understanding is that, you know, Jesse on a regular basis would submit stuff to Prince for consideration. And, you know, Prince would be encouraging and say, you know, this is not quite right. Keep going, keep going. Finally, Jesse, you know, I guess gave him a cassette demo of, you know, what the basis of Jungle Love was. And Prince goes, that's the one we're going to do. So, you know, really the melodic idea, the you know, the, the bed of Jungle Love, I think, is Jesse's. And Prince, uh, I think, wrote the lyrics and the top line and, you know, obviously, you know, produced it and did, you know, a, a number of other things on the track. But Mars is on there. Jesse's on there. Jill Jones, who was ubiquitous at those sessions, largely uncredited doing background vocals, is on there. So mm. there's, you know, other people involved. Yeah. I, I've been watching you. I think I'm going to know you. 
Most of the songs on originals were cut by the artists or added, you know, added their vocals. Yeah. Fairly quickly after Prince had recorded and written his version, usually within a year. Oh, yeah. There are three songs on the album that do have a much wider length of time between Prince's version and the release of yeah. them. For instance, Kenny Rogers recorded You're My Love four years later. Yeah. In these cases, were these songs not written with these artists in mind necessarily, but found their way to them through other means? In the case of You're My Love, I think that is what happened. I don't, I'm not sure that Prince wrote that with Kenny Rogers in mind. I don't know exactly how it got to Kenny, to be honest, and that's something that I need to research and you know get some clarity on, but however it happened, it was it drifted into Kenny's orbit and he ended up retracking it in 86, which was four years after Prince did the recording. I mean, you know, I, I sort of liken it to Prince doing kind of a holiday in lounge kind of vibe. You know, I mean, it's a very, you know, it's a very atypical kind of sonic proposition, particularly for that time period. Oh, baby, you're my love and I love everything you do to me. Yeah, yeah. You're my love and I love when you're around. You're my love and I let you down. Let's talk about Glamorous Life. Yes. So that was tracked in uh, late December, December 27th, 83, I think. So it was kind of as Prince was, you know, moving rapidly, you know, into what became the Purple Rain era, but was done at a time when he was in L.A. It was Sunset Sound. His normal engineer, who was Peggy McCreary at the time, I think was unavailable uh, and was uh, engineered by a guy called Terry Christian, who you know I guess was available for the session or whatever. But Prince had the had the song written and recorded in the space of you know from what I understand like 24 hours or something, and then ended up giving it to Sheila, who you know did some overdubs and kind of made it her own, and that was her you know sort of unveiling you know as a solo artist and became a substantial hit for her in '84. But it was for all intents and purposes finished in late '83. Yeah, that one blew up on MTV, too. Sure you did. couldn't get away from it. And sure did. Yeah. She's got big thoughts, big dreams, and a big Mercedes sedan. But I think this girl, she really wants to be in love with a man. She wants to lead a glamorous life. She don't need a man's touch. She wants to lead Another song on the record is Holly Rock, another yeah. Sheila E. song. Yeah. Tell us about that one. So that was part of the soundtrack for a film called A Crush Groove, which was, you know, kind of a a break hip-hop breakdancing film that was, I think, released in the summer of 85 or something. And, um, and Prince deliberately wrote that one, I think, for Sheila. I mean, you can hear him say, I'm Sheila E., <laughs> you know, in the lyrics yeah. of the song, which is, you know, kind of funny to hear him you know, sort of articulate that, but he inhabits it, you know, so convincingly that it's, you know, even though you hear it, you're like, well, that's Prince saying it. I guess, you know, he can, if anybody can get away with it, he can. But, um, you know, I think he was demonstrating the way that, you know, he envisioned the song to, you know, to sound and to the, you know, the kind of energy. And I mean, it's like, a, it's a total rave up. I mean, it's basically him 
playing virtually everything. I mean, Sheila is heavily involved in the, you know, sort of percussive elements and background vocals. No question about it. I mean, she's she is no slouch. Uh, and I think, you know, certainly Prince recognized that. I mean, he was, you know, he tended to surround himself with people who could, you know, who could really, really cut it. Uh, yeah. And she was no exception to that. You know, the whole spirit of the thing is just, it's a, it's really, it's a very cool to hear Prince, you know, sort of in a completely joyful sort of reckless abandon let loose in the studio kind of uh you know kind of environment uh sonic environment you know it's a it's a kind of it's a real banger actually and one that i you know i didn't expect people to react as favorably to for you know i mean i'm i'm certainly happy they did i put it on there just because you know i thought it was a very interesting peek into his artistry particularly at the time but Mm -hmm. it was not it was not something that i thought maybe people would you know sort of gravitate to you know without being guided there but it seems to be one that you know people are putting their hand up as you know we love this Uh, absolutely they are yeah yeah When Prince signed with Warner Brothers, yeah. was there anything in the contract that afforded him the ability to unlimited studio time, complete control? How did he structure his deal? His, his original agreement in 77? Yeah. yeah. The three guys who were very instrumental in it were Mo Austin, who was the chairman of Warner and a beloved industry figure, Lenny Warnocker, who, who A&R'd and signed him, really, and... Rust Iret, all three of whom represented artistic freedom, I think, to Prince and, you know, basically said, look, well, we will let you do whatever you want, you know, just basically make us proud, right. <laughs> which he did. Yeah. Lenny has told me several times that, you know, just witnessing Prince in Alpha Studio in Burbank when Prince did his showcase for Warner, he said, you know, they basically for... 40 seconds just watched him operate and they're like done you know i mean it was there was no question that this guy was you know born was that de- was absolutely born to do it with prince there was no nepotism you know he was not in la or new york and around you know a bunch of other musicians he was you know it was just sheer otherworldly talent you know and force of will and the belief of the people around him who sort of made it happen, you know, I mean, it was inevitable, I think, that he would become who, who, he, who he was, you know, or that the world would recognize who he was. Yeah. But it wasn't easy for him, though. I mean, he no. had to, he definitely had some speed bumps along the way, Absolutely. even after he was signed and producing great music. Absolutely. For instance, no question. Uh, when he opened for the Rolling Stones at the Coliseum in 81, he was booed off the stage. He certainly was. He certainly was. I think that was his first real taste of mass hostility. You know, it really spooked him from what I understand. And there were two shows. The first one where he, you know, kind of came out, you know, in front of a very aggressive Stones audience who were not ready for, you know, an African-American guy in... A you know, skin leotard. Exactly. You know, playing, you know, sort of a rock-funk hybrid. You know, they were just not having it. I mean, they were throwing lit cigarettes at bottles and stuff, you know, from Boots. what I understand, but yeah, like all kinds of stuff. He flew home. I mean, he flew to, back to Minneapolis. So I'm wow. done. He, you know, he wasn't even going to play the second show. Either Des or Bobby or maybe both had to go, you know, talk to him and physically bring him back to LA to do the second show. I mean, and Jagger had to call him, I think, and said, look, this, you know, this happens to all artists at some point, you know, we love you. 
the second show would be better, please come out and you know, do it. So he did, but that left an indelible impression. I don't think he ever contemplated supporting anybody else again after that. It was all headline tours. Nobody, you know, there was nobody he would open for. And that's you know, a major step in his artistic evolution. I think coincided maybe within a year of when he became a lot less open with the press because there was a time, Des actually told me this story, there was a time you know, when Prince would sit down and be relatively open with interviewers. I mean, he's, you know, he was not the kind of guy who, would, you know, be inclined to have a chin wag with you and just, you know, <laughs> yes. you know, kind of uh, shoot the shit, so to speak. He didn't have but time. He had to get back to he work. Didn't, right, exactly. He didn't have time. But he was also, you know, a, a relatively insular guy, but he seemed more open to uh, trying to be cooperative with interviewers for the most part until there was some interview where Prince answered a question that I, I believe he, uh, you know, basically gave the caveat, look, this has to be off the record. I'll tell you, but I don't with this. And the interviewer printed or disseminated the information and Prince basically said, I'm done. I'm not, you know, I am to Dez, you know, it's like, I'm not doing this anymore. You know, I'm going to let the music speak for itself, basically. It's so, a case of somebody ruining it for everybody yeah. else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think those two incidents, the Stones and the, you know, interview, um, which were relatively close from a chronological standpoint, I think, basically caused Prince to withdraw a bit more than, you know, he otherwise would have. But it must have played some role in defining how he created and disseminated his art after Absolutely. That. Absolutely. No question about it. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, there's a famous quote where he says, you know, I am music. You know, not I love music. You know, not music is super cool. He's like, I am music. You know, there's no distinction, basically. And that's, that's how he will be. You know, that's why he's immortal, because the, because the music has so much impact and, you know, has entered the cultural fabric in such a, a magnificent way. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, Rich, if I may say so, nothing compares to that conversation. <laughs> it was really cool to talk to Michael, and we appreciate his time. Thank you very much to shed some light on something that doesn't get talked about a lot. All of that behind-the-scenes Prince was, he was very guarded. He was very serious about his art. He created so much great music, and we have so much more to look forward to from the Prince Vault and the Prince Estate in the coming years. And as usual, the Rhino Podcast has the insight. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino Podcast. Executive producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Pop Cult and Rich Mahan Promotions. All rights reserved.